listening to another episode of the Beulah Girl podcast. For links, related resources, and even more encouragement, visit BeulahGirl.com. Hi, friend. Thanks so much for tuning in. This is the Beulah Girl podcast, and I'm Carol Whitaker, your host. I'm so glad you've tuned in. I've really loved this series. We've been going through a series called Holding Fast to Our Faith in Troubled Times, and we've been just exploring the idea of what it means to fall away from faith or just drift, not even necessarily leave the faith, but just sort of drift in our walk. Sometimes the problems and the trials we face in the world can just chip away at us, can make us complacent, can make it difficult for us to forge forward, can just discourage us to the point that we no longer have an enthusiasm for for the things of God. We no longer press in, that we, we kind of get lazy or just apathetic and let ourselves drift. And we've been discussing you know, how we can hold firm to our faith, how we can reignite the passion if we feel like we're drifting, um, how to guard against that if we're in a place where, you know, we are in a solid place with the Lord at the moment, but just maybe some tips for in the future when we're in a place of facing trials, how to guard against that in our life, and then really just what it means to walk and be a devoted follower of Christ, to walk with a zeal every day, to really be devoted and live the abundant life that the gospel talks about. I want to focus in this episode on, we've talked a little bit in the previous episodes about faithfulness, about living, what it means to have a faithful walk. And I want to just expand on that idea even more and talk about really what it means to grow in our walk with Christ and live a transformed life, not just going through the motions. You know, God never intended us for us to be saved and then just simply go through the motions and live every day sleepwalking. We're really intended to be transformed from the inside out as we walk with Christ and become a new creation as the Bible talks about in 2 Corinthians 4, 16, it says, Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. What that means is that as believers, we are on a journey with Jesus to be ever-changed daily. And each of his promptings to us, when he nudges us, each of those are an invitation to partner with him as he uses us to not only change the lives of others, but be changed ourselves. But as I've talked about in previous episodes, if we resist his nudges, or we simply aren't open to them or communing with him on a daily basis, then we can really not live the life that he intended us to live. And so this episode is just going to focus on that transformed life and living ever being renewed. If we actually look at the word renew from that verse, it means moving from one stage to a higher, more developed one. So just this idea of constantly progressing and moving in our Christian walk. I do have to confess to you with this episode that my my mind is at a bit of a scramble, so I'm hoping you'll give me a bit of grace. Um, I find it a little ironic. We've been going through a series talking about clinging to our faith and, and uh, maintaining this firm faith in troubled times. And honestly, just to get these last two episodes, this one and the previous one done, has been kind of that idea of trying to forge forward in the midst of obstacles, 
Last week, my kids were on break, and so I recorded the episode, but we went up to my father-in-law's and stayed for a few days. He lives about an hour away from us, a little more. He has no Wi-Fi, so I had finished the episode, but didn't have time to put it together. So I'm at Starbucks, I had to drive to Starbucks early in the morning, uh, sit there and put together last week's episode and kind of pull that together at a nearby Starbucks. And then this week, when I was recording the episode yesterday, my three-year-old woke up unexpectedly a little earlier than I thought. So I couldn't finish it. And then we've been in the midst of potty training with her. So it's been sort of a daily intensive all day kind of training. And so I feel like I'm not even sure if my ideas I are cohesive. So I'm hoping what I'm saying here that you'll give me some grace that what I'm saying is uh, clearly communicated. And if not, you'll just click on over to BeulahGirl.com. I will have the article up. If not today, then by tomorrow, I'll have the article up that you can kind of go through and maybe some of these ideas will become clear to you. And And I'm just praying and did pray before this that God will just speak to you clearly through, you know, my words, I'm limited in what I can do, but God can do anything through me. And so I just pray that my words will really just resonate and help you where, where, wherever you find yourselves. At the end of Revelation 3, the church of Laodicea receives an invitation from Jesus for this renewal and restoration they need. They are not living the renewed life that I just read to you about in 2 Corinthians 4.16. In fact, they have slipped into complacency and self-sufficiency. Like the church of Sardis at the beginning of Revelation 3, they were very complacent, but they were in a terrible, even probably worse state than Sardis. Um, they did not even know the state that they found themselves in. They very much were attached to worldly comforts and believed that they had everything they needed because they were very wealthy and they were able to supply their physical needs, no problem. And so they believed that they had everything that they need, but Jesus comes on the scene and rebukes them quite harshly for their complacency and basically tells them that they are not doing as well as they think they are. I want to read to you from verses 15 through 20 at the end of Revelation 3. It says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither um, cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and south to put on your eyes so you can see those whom I love. I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. So what we see here is that Jesus offers them an invitation to step away from the complacency that they're in and allow him in their hearts, but they have to choose to accept his invitation and the invitation he gives them requires that they buy from him. So what exactly can we learn from the church? He uses this really strange terminology here with buying from Jesus. What exactly does that mean? We know salvation is free. We know that we can 
receive that and we don't have to do anything to earn that. So what exactly is Jesus talking about? I want to just give two very simple points. And the first I want to draw from this passage is number one, we need Jesus in order to live a transformed life. The church of Laodicea in this verse is identified as wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. They had accepted Jesus. It wasn't that they were unbelievers. They had accepted Jesus. They were saved. And yet they had allowed their devotion to him to cool to the point that they're defined as lukewarm. Lukewarm is in the state of cooling down. It's no longer hot. And we can look at lukewarm as being a middle ground. It's neither hot nor cold. These believers, they weren't on fire for Jesus. They weren't living this transformed life. They were in a sort of middle state between hot and cold. But just like they weren't on fire, they weren't opposed to Jesus either. They had accepted him. They believed in him. They, Some of them, you know, they may have even thought that, that they were pleasing him. But they, in fact, were in this middle ground of simply going through the motions of the Christian life without actually having the transforming power, renewing them day by day. And they had attached themselves to their wealth, to their worldly comforts. And that's where they were really finding their fulfillment and believing that their needs were being met through that and not relying on Jesus to be giving them what they needed. It's not wrong to be wealthy. It's not wrong to have worldly um, wealth. And that's not what Jesus is saying here. But they had attached to it to the point that they weren't relying on Jesus. And Jesus invites them and says that they need to come to him to buy what they need. Gold refined in the fire, white clothes and eye salve. These could not be found anywhere else. The world could not give them the things that they needed. These could only be found in Jesus. And if we look at what what it really means, gold refining the fire is saying that they needed to find what their souls needed from to be rich, to be spiritually rich. They were spiritually destitute at that moment to really have what they needed to be filled up. They needed what God could provide, and that was gold refined in the fire. They needed white clothes, which would mean they needed to exchange what their deeds in their flesh were just filthy rags in God's sight, and they needed to, to exchange that for righteousness in order to, um, to really be in the image of Christ. They needed to allow him to work on them so they could be conformed in his image. Now, when we come to Christ, God does make us holy. He makes us righteous. He cleans us. He cleanses us. But there is this process called sanctification where we're walking with him and he's constantly molding us into his image that we don't, you know, we are cleansed when we come to him. We're justified, but there is this idea that we are also in the Christian life ever being changed and molded into the image of Christ. And we receive from Jesus the righteousness, the white clothes um, that we need. And the eye salve, it mentions in the passage, eye salve, that they had eyes that could see physically, right? But spiritually, their eyesight was, they were blind. They needed God's eye salve to be able to see the spiritual realm, to see things the way that Jesus did. And all of us need that to be able to see our circumstances, to see 
um, the world through the eyes of Jesus and be able to really discern spiritual matters. We need to constantly walking with Jesus and he gives us his perspective as we do that. And it's a very different perspective than we have naturally in just the way that our mind thinks the ways of God, it tells us in the Bible are high and beyond us. They're not our ways. And so in order to have God's ways, we have to constantly be in tune with his spirit. And we can't do that if we're not walking with him, relying on him. So in order to receive what they needed, the Laodiceans, they needed to buy from Jesus. Now, I just want to be really clear about this term buy, because I think that it can really cause some confusion and misinterpretation. And what it's saying here is not that we need to do the work of salvation or do anything to receive salvation other than ask Jesus in our lives. We don't buy salvation. We don't earn salvation. The Bible is very clear on that. We also don't do the work of sanctification. We allow Jesus to work in us and he transforms us from the inside out. But we don't do that. We don't do that transforming work. Jesus does, but we do participate in the process of a renewal. We do as Jesus says, and he changes us. We walk with Jesus and we obey him and we um, obey his word, not as a list of, okay, I just have to do these 20 things and I'll be um, holy. It's not about that. It's just, okay, I'm learning what it means to be a Christ follower. I'm reading his word. I'm doing as he says. I'm praying. I'm asking Jesus, inviting him into my life. And he's showing me how to do life. That's what it means um, to live a transformed life. So the idea in the passage is the buy, when Jesus says buy for me, it's not um, that um, it's not talking about that we're using money to buy something from Jesus. But it does talk about a transaction. And that is why I believe this word is even used here is because it's talking about a transaction that does take place when we walk with Jesus after we are saved as believers and we're walking with Jesus, we're um, communing with him, we're praying, we're reading his word, we're learning from him. We continually exchange and give up something in return for a change in our lives. When we walk with, with him, God is going to show us things in our life that we need to let go of habits and thoughts that are not of him. And when we let those go, there is a transaction that takes place in exchange where he begins to give us his thoughts. Um, we adopt his thoughts and we begin to change our old patterns, our ways of doing things in the flesh, um, that all of us bring into our relationship with Christ. We all have, um, fleshly attitudes and patterns that we do life the way that we know how to do it the best way we know. And we've learned that. And then when we, we, we come to Christ, he teaches us a new and better way. So that's what it means here by buy. I love what S Martin in the biblical illustrator says. He says the word buy here does not mean to give an equivalent, but to part with self-sufficiency to part with it for something valuable. So he's basically saying that to buy means to part with our old sin nature and to adopt the new patterns of doing life that, that Jesus shows us. So in, in, in different seasons of our life, Jesus will identify, um, to us what we need to give up or let go of in order to see needed change in our lives. And this is not about earning. This is not about being good enough. It's just about learning to live how God, um, wants us to live and doing life better than we can do it on our own. 
I've been going through Lisa Turker's study, what happens when women say yes to God. And in this study, Lisa describes a season in her life where she, she made some changes. She went to a conference and it was on radical obedience and she was inspired to pray after the conference, um, to be, you know, radically obedient. She says, Lord, I want to do this, you know, help me to be the woman that you want me to be. And right after she prayed this, she got two things in her mind and immediately she felt like God was telling her to sell her house and give up TV. And of course, when this came to mind, she was a little surprised and said, Lord, is this really you? Is this, why are you telling me to do this? What does this have to do with anything? And the more she prayed about it, the more that she really just felt that God was telling her to give up those two things. And with the TV, she felt like she was supposed to give that up because, you know, several Bible verses came to mind when she was praying about it. And, you know, she clarifies in her book, you know, watching TV isn't wrong. All Christians are not supposed to give up TV, but she felt like she was supposed to give it up because it had become a way for her to unwind at the end of the day. And it was just, she was at a time at the end of the day when she was empty, when she's vulnerable and she was really allowing herself to be fulfilled through just sort of empty entertainment shows that were really feeding her more of the world's views than God's. And God wanted to really fill her up in that season and for her to rely on him. In the case of their house, again, she really wanted some confirmation. So she prayed about it, was a little nervous about bringing it up. She and her husband had really fixed up their house to make it exactly what they wanted and they weren't living beyond their means. So she was a little confused. So she just prayed about it and she didn't say anything to her husband. And then shortly after praying, her husband just brought it up to her. He'd been reading a devotion and said, you know, Lisa, I think we're supposed to sell our house. And she was shocked, you know, okay. So they called a realtor. They met with one, they put their house in the market, but it didn't, it didn't sell for a whole year. It didn't sell. And what Lisa talks about is that she believes that, you know, God was just really testing their devotion and really working on her. And just like with the TV situation, she, she and her husband were really looking to find, you know, they had really fixed up their house, but they're really looking to earthly things for their fulfillment to that house. And so God was just really showing them again, that he wanted them to really find their fulfillment in him and really just testing how devoted they were. And it turns out their house didn't sell. They, you know, never sold it and they were able to keep it, but it really prepared her also for the next season where they were adopting two more kids in addition to their three. And Lisa was just saying that, you know, with two more kids came absolute chaos. They weren't able to even keep up everything the way that they had before and just taught her to really hold what she has loosely and, and not hold it in such a firm grip. So really she was able to learn just, um, in that season, really what it means to do what God tells us to let go of what he tells us. And then, you know, allow him to really teach us what he wants. Philippians two thirteen says to continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you to will and act according to his good purpose. The verse is really telling us how we cooperate with the Holy Spirit to grow spiritually. And I love the way that Rick Warren explains this verse in the purpose driven life. He says, this verse shows the two parts of spiritual growth, work out and work in the work out is your responsibility and the work in is God's role. Spiritual growth is a collaborative effort between you and the Holy Spirit. 
God's spirit works with us, not just in us. This verse written to believers is not about how to be saved, but how to grow. It does not say work for your salvation because you can't add anything to what Jesus already did. During a physical workout, you exercise to develop your body, not to get a body. And so basically what Warren's saying here is working out our salvation is not working for our salvation. After we come to Christ, it's not like, oh, I've got to keep on working, working, working. No, you receive salvation, you're saved. What it's saying is that working out your salvation is just working out, letting God work in you to letting yourself grow. And so that's what it's really talking about. And again, it's talking about that same idea in Revelation 3. Buy from Christ what we need um, to grow, to be renewed day by day, rather than looking to other things to be satisfied. The second point I want to bring out is that if we need to live, you know, if we find what we need to live a transformed life in Jesus, then the obvious, I think, truth that we can find in the passage of Revelation is some of us are attempting to live a transformed life without Jesus. My pastor said something the other day that really struck me. And I I laughed when he said it and it wasn't funny, but I laughed because it sounded so absurd to me. And what he said is some of us are trying to live the Christian life without Jesus. And that sounds so, so absurd, doesn't it? Why would we ever try? We can't live the Christian life without Jesus. But the same idea is, is, is in this passage that my pastor said in And that is that even after we've accepted Jesus, we can shut him out of our hearts. I don't mean that we lose our salvation or, you know, somehow if we get apathetic that we're no longer saved. That's not what what scripture advocates, but we can shut him out. We can try to do life on our own and not live with a reliance on him. And that can be because we we don't really know um, really how to live the Christian life. Or that how the importance of really reading scripture and staying connected to him. Or it can just mean that, you know, we're not listening to Jesus's promptings. We're not allowing him into the daily workings of our everyday life. It says this in the passage. It says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person. And they with me. So we get this idea with Laodicea that, Jesus was outside the door. He was knocking. He wanted to come in, but they had shut him out. And we do that same thing. I do that same thing. Sometimes I say, you know what, Jesus, I can take it from here. I don't really need you here. I want to do it, right? I want to live according to the way I want to live. Like I want Jesus as far as I want. You know, I know that I need him when I'm in a crisis. I know in my head that I need him. But sometimes day to day, I really push him out because I, I'm not really wanting to do what he tells me or I'm I'm thinking, you know, I'm relying on my own strategies to get through life. I'm not really wanting to go the way he points down or I'm, I'm just wanting to do it myself. My three-year-old, um, she'll constantly say to me, I do it, I do it. And she doesn't want my help, but sometimes she can't do what she is attempting to do, whether it's put it on her pants or you know, um, you know, do put doll clothes on a doll. Sometimes she can't do all the things she wants. And yet she always is telling me, I do it. I do it. And we do that with God too. We say, you know, I do it, God. And he's knocking on the door of a hearts and he's saying, 
let me in. And um, he wants to really be be with us. Um, I was talking about this verse with my kids. My son got an action Bible. And it's um, actually a comic book. And it has a picture at the very end from Revelation of Jesus knocking on the door of our hearts. And so my kids were asking about that. And I was telling them about it. And my, my daughter, you know, the importance of constantly listening to Jesus, letting him tell us what we need to be doing. And my daughter says, oh, I will do anything that Jesus asks. She's 10. And I'm thinking in my mind, I'm thinking that is just the sweetest thing. But honey, trust me, when you get a little older and he starts telling you things you don't really want to hear, you may not be so, you know, zealous and say, oh, anything, Jesus. Because sometimes, truthfully, he's going to tell us things that we don't want to hear. And he's going to lead us in a path that we really don't want to go down. And, but when we're just receptive, obedient, we say, Lord, I want to live yielded to you. Then we really experience that transformed life. We experience the change that we want in our life, even though it hurts in our flesh sometimes to just let go of whatever it is that we're holding on to. And my son, who's eight, he he said he was listening and he um he he put his hand on his chest like a little fist and he made this little creaking sound and and basically made this motion like he was opening a door and he goes, says, here, Jesus, you can come in my heart. You can come in my heart. And it was the sweetest thing. And if some of you are listening and rolling your eyes saying, well, that's great that you have perfect children. Let me assure you, I do not. And I could tell you all of their imperfections, but I don't want to, you know, blast them. But I will say that it touches me that they're so receptive to Jesus. I know that the world is just bombarding them and is going to continue as they grow older. And I pray all the time, Lord, Help them retain that soft heart to you because I know the temptation as they get older is just going to be to close themselves off to, to, to Jesus. But I love that my son, he made the little sound and he says, you can come in Jesus. And I thought, you know, that is what Jesus wants in all of us. Just that childlike dependence on him saying, Jesus, you can come in. I want to wrap up by telling a story. This you know, message is one that, that, you know, just was one that resonated with me and reminded me of a story of, you know, um, a season I went through in my life where this really, this idea of just doing what God asked and being transformed in the process really was so poignant to me. But there was a season, if you've listened to my podcast or read my blog, you know, I'll put some article links up so you guys can even read more about this this process if you're interested. But this is really my story of why I even started blogging and doing what I'm doing is I went through a season when I left. I used to be a high school teacher. I left my career as a teacher at God's prompting. And when I left, I went through this very unusual season where all of a sudden I began to get these memories and just these nudges, memories of things I had done in the past. And then just these nudges to do some very bold things that made me very uncomfortable, but I really felt like there were some memories of some bad choices I had made. Um, and I needed to do something about that. And the first memory that came up was, um, when I, of a, a job I had my first job as a teenager and I had stolen some candy from a manager and it wasn't, um, 
like a premeditated thing. I had money for the candy. I was just standing um, at the, um, you know, waiting to close up one day. And a coworker says, hey, why don't you just take some M&Ms? And just really like encouraged me. And I felt some peer pressure and took some candy. And I've always felt bad about it. I felt like I was supposed to write him a letter and apologize. And so I did that. And another nudge came up to contact my former work. Um, as a teacher, I was always afraid that I was going to get fired, that I wasn't going to keep my job. I wanted to be perfect. I thought I had to be perfect for, um, and so I would cover up anything that didn't look perfect. And one of the difficulties for me as a teacher, there's so many jobs you have to do as a teacher, um, was, one of the jobs I had to do was handle money. I had to collect vocabulary fees and I was very haphazard. Like we had to collect the fees and then we'd turn them into a department head. And so with vocabulary, a lot of times kids would give it to me in between class. I'd stick it in my drawer and I had a hard time, you know, turning those in sometimes on time. Or if, you know, I needed lunch money for a day, I would take money from my drawer and then return it with my own money. And it became kind of a bookkeeping nightmare And so when I, um, turned in my slips, sometimes I wouldn't, um, particularly when I left, there were a few slips that I had, I didn't have money for them. And so I had to, um, supplement that with my own money. And then there were checks that were outdated and it was kind of a, a nightmare. And I wasn't particularly a hundred percent honest with my department head. I did tell her that I did have some checks that were outdated, but I didn't tell her that I, you know, should have confessed that I wasn't hundred percent good about keeping up with that money. And I felt like I was supposed to go back and just tell her about that and make sure that, you know, that she knew. And if there was any outstanding balance to, to pay that, even though it had been, you know, somewhat after the fact. And then there was a field trip, sum of money that I had just left in my drawer. It was only a few dollars, but after the time that I was supposed to turn it in, um, it ended up that, um, we had more than we needed for the field trip. We were supposed to collect a few extra dollars for it. It turned out we had more than enough and I didn't know what to do with that money. I was afraid after the fact that, um, you know, it just kind of sat in my drawer for a while. And I was afraid after the funds had already been collected, I just kind of let it go and didn't actually turn it in. And then that had been my first year teaching. And then as I was leaving, I remembered that field trip some And I was afraid if I had come forward and said, oh, I still have this few dollars left that they would, um, they would be angry at me. They would tell me I wasn't good at bookkeeping. And in retrospect and thinking about it, I'm thinking to myself, if anything, they would be happy that I was being honest, you know, and saying, Hey, I still have this sum. So I left that field trip money just in my drawer. I mean, I knew I wasn't going to take it. It wasn't mine, but I didn't want to come forward and say, Hey, I've had this for an extraordinarily long time. And so I felt like I was supposed to go and make that right. And then as I did those things, um, I also, it's just these nudges kept coming. Um, I also knew that I needed to just in general apologize to my work for not being a Christian example. I was a Christian while working and no one would have even batted an eye um, because our world, you know, it is, isn't it common for people to live with moral caliber anymore, but I really just, as a teacher, you know, I really fell into, um, really loving the approval of my classes. I laughed at things I shouldn't have laughed at. Um, 
I had developed as a young person, just, I developed this habit of looking to others for approval and particularly with males. Um, I would, you know, look for that approval and it really was, I think a habit that developed out of some pain in my childhood of wanting that attention. And so as a teacher, you know, there was no inappropriate relationship with the student. I prided myself on professionalism, wasn't doing anything. Um, wasn't meeting with students or anything like that, but I very much, you know, um, cultivated that attention that, um, I did get a lot of attention as a young 20 something teacher from my male students and just the males in my workplace. Um, and just the males I encountered, you know, at church or whatever. And I really felt like God wanted me to go back and say to my classes and say to some of the people I knew in my life that, you know, I was stepping away from, I just apologize to say, you know, that I had sought that out, that attention and that I hadn't been a good Christian role model. This was of course, extremely difficult and painful and and humiliating for me to do. And I didn't understand what God exactly was doing, but I did. I wrote a letter of apology to my students, um, to administration. Um, they didn't really understand, you know, what I was, was really doing. Um, but you know, I, I just stated that I felt like I needed to do that and I didn't get in any kind of trouble or anything with the school district. Again, it wasn't, um, in a, um, inappropriate relationships or anything like that. It was more just, um, a flirtatious behavior on my part and felt like I needed to apologize for that and, um, step away from looking to other people for my sense of, of worth. And it was just revealed to me. God gave me a phrase while I was going through that process, addiction to approval. And he revealed to me, um, basically I got this phrase in my mind as I was making those phone calls and later found the phrase as I was praying about it saying, God, is this really you telling me this found that exact phrase in a devotional written by Joyce Meyer. She's, as it turns out, she's written a whole book on approval addiction. And I ended up reading the book and found out God revealed to me after making those contacts in that process of going back to my job, of going back and really apologizing for some wrong choices I'd made. He gave me just this gift in that season. And that was, he showed me that I had an addiction. I didn't even know that you could have an addiction to something other than a substance. Um, but you know, you can have an addiction to things and I was addicted to people and that I made choices, um, that, were not always right choices to get the approval of others. And what God showed me was there was a common denominator with the manager, with the workplace, all of those choices of the vocabulary, you know, the, um, funds I was collecting and, and, um, the, you know, the way that, that I tried to get approval for my classes as a teacher, all of that was a common denominator of, you know, I did whatever I could to please others, to look good, to save face, to be perfect. It was all about wanting people to like me because my sense of worth, I was deriving it from my performance and also what others thought of me. And God really wanted me to derive my sense of worth from him. And so he showed me in that season of walking through those hard choices, I had to give up some very painful, um, well, also unha- unhealthy 
habits and also unhealthy thought patterns of in regards to my worth and replace them with the truth of scripture, which says I have worth because God made me. And so I don't have to, you know, it's, it's okay to have people like me. It's okay to have good relationships, but I was taking it to an unhealthy level of basing my thoughts about myself and my identity on what other people thought. And it led to some very unhealthy choices. Um, and so it was really the season of walking with him and letting go, doing what he said. And as a result, I was very much transformed. And that transformation has continued. Of course, today, God's working on me in new things. I no longer have an addiction to approval. Um, I no longer am, am basing my entire life and how I think about myself on what people think. But it is sometimes still something, you know, of course, I still struggle to please others sometimes, but it's not an addiction. God healed me of that by walking through those very unusual, unusual steps. I want to just close by saying that, you know, um, there are sometimes God will give us nudges and we don't always love what he tells us, but it's in walking with him and doing what he says that we are essentially changed. And what God is telling the church here in Laodicea is they need to return once again to him to rely on him and that he is going to change them. Wherever you find yourself as you're listening to this, God knows where you are, whether you're, you know, far away from him or very close. It doesn't matter. God can meet you wherever you are. I want to just encourage you that if God is nudging you in a certain direction and you feel resistant to him, you feel like I'm just not going that way, Lord. I'm going my own way. To really just be receptive and open and say, Lord, come in. You know, come eat with me. I'm opening the door of my heart to you. I know it's the only way to live and that, you know, day by day, God wants to renew us, but it's only in listening to him and in allowing him to, um, to lead us that we can live the life that we were meant to live. This isn't doing anything that is against scripture. Again, we need to be careful about the actions we take, make sure they line up with scripture, but it's just being receptive, being open and saying, Lord, I want to do, I want to live I want to be transformed. Help me to do that and being receptive to him in order to do that. Let's just go ahead and pray. Lord, thank you for your word. These, these words to the church of Laodicea are challenging. They are a rebuke Lord, and they can be challenging because they also are for believers in general. And perhaps as we're listening to these words, Lord, maybe there's some, some areas of our life you're working on and we're afraid to let you work in those areas. Lord, I just pray that we would be receptive. You would help us to be open. And if we just feel like, Lord, you're scaring us, you're, you're, you're maybe, um, nudging us in an area that makes us, we're not sure what you're doing, Lord, that we would just pray for the strength to trust you that we, you know, if we even just need to pray and say, Lord, help me to do what you ask, help me to trust you that Lord, you would help to give us um, just the trust we need, the faith, we would do what you ask, knowing that in order to be transformed, Lord, that it's in walking with you, that we're transformed and that we don't want to shut you out, Lord. If we have, I just pray we will repent right now and, and allow you to enter. And thank you so much, Lord. You don't leave us where we are, that you know exactly what we need and that you transform us day by day when we walk with you in Jesus name. Amen. Amen.